Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon-Jarvis, and I have a really special episode of our podcast today. I've been really looking forward to talking to Una and Amit for about a month now, once we reconnected over Facebook, and I learned about your story. So you guys, welcome. Thank you so much for giving me your time this morning. Thank you for having us. Thanks. So I would love for you guys to just sort of take it away. Tell, tell folks about why I asked you to be on the podcast, where you are in sort of the grief and loss space. Tell us about what, what you guys carry in your everyday life. Yeah. You know, Megan, it was so interesting when you and I became Facebook friends and I started reading about what you were doing in your space. And I was so moved by it. Just kudos to you for all the important work you're doing And it took me back to a moment I had um, sitting in my therapist's office. I have a dear friend from high school whose son is the exact same age as my sons. My sons have severe autism. They were diagnosed at two and a half. They're nonverbal, very behavioral. They'll never live independently. And it's something that Amit and I sort of live on a day-to-day basis. And this friend has always been very careful with me. And I so appreciate that. She loves me and I love her. And then there was a moment when her son got into the high school that we attended. And she told me because she had to, and I was so happy for her because I love her son, but it was this real moment for me. And I was sitting in my therapist's office, talking to my therapist about it. And she used the word mourn. Yeah. And I was so taken aback. I was almost offended. Why am I more? I'm not mourning. And she says, well, it's, it's a loss. And that was a real pivotal moment for me. So that's why I wanted to, to connect with you. And I'm so grateful. Oh, I mean, you're nodding. I couldn't agree with Una more about the concept of mourning because it's almost offensive because the boys are alive and well, and they're leading meaningful lives in their own way. But unlike losing a child or a parent to cancer or something like that, where there's this tragic event that happens and there's a loss, it's almost, you can quickly fall into traps where you, whether it's seeing peers go to schools, seeing peers, ride with their kids in go-karts, seeing kids Mm. playing catch with their parents, backyard football, tennis, whatever. And, and the losses not being able to do those things with our boys and trying to manage that is, is chap very challenging. Yeah. So in the grief space, we have all this language around like ambiguous loss and disenfranchised loss and which is basically to kind of cover the kind of mourning and the kind of experience you know grief is is the emotional reaction to loss right so loss is in and of itself is just sort of this energetic thing but the grief and the mourning are the emotional reaction to something and there are so many ways in which sort of the grief world, the world in which someone brings you a casserole or a card or flowers or remembers or thinks or honors what your emotional space would be like, is completely and totally invisible. And the world of grief and loss has done the best it can with the language that's out there. But you guys are talking about one, and I said this to you when we were off mic, that really rarely gets talked about which is the dreams and hopes that we have for our children. And some of those dreams and hopes are utterly unrealistic. Like, I hope they become the president or I hope they, and and others of them are just sort of like that typical, I want them to ride in a go-kart. And that it makes perfect sense as parents, because even the most terrible parents out there usually have some idea of love and how they want their child's life to go that when those two two things don't even out, when we don't have the agency to make those two things possible, that it makes sense that there would be some kind of emotional. And and I think the word that would fit the best is disenfranchised because there isn't going to be a bouquet of flowers on your desk at work 
when you have had a really terrible weekend thinking about how your sons will not go to the high school that you love to go to and that your good friend's kid gets to go to. So that concept of mourning is an interesting one. And I'd love to know more about how you have been thinking about that. Because again, I think of grief as a verb, an action that we have to do. And if we don't do it, it sits on us and with us. And if we don't sort of action it out. So how do you as a couple and individuals, when you have that day, you know, which is a typical grief day where, you know, if I'm missing my mom, I can miss her in a thousand ways. When I go outside, I can see a mother and daughter together. I can see somebody on the phone and think that they're talking to their mom. I can see a sweater that my mom used to wear. How do you guys carry it? What do you do? Do you sit down and talk to each other? Do you go to your therapist? Do you journal about it? Do you mostly push it to the side? Do you have relatives, friends, you know, play the violin? How do you carry it? Mm, That's a really good question. My initial sense is that we mostly push it to the side. And then again, that's what drew me to you and your work, because there's not a lot of space um, and time for grief when you have special needs children. There's a lot to do. And when you're advocating for your special needs child, you need to be full of hope and resilience. That is what you need in order to get them the best quality lives and happiness. You need that. So when the moment comes of loss, it's blindsides us Mm because most of the time we're chugging forward. And in the backyard, I had this moment, it's best friend from Yale comes through town. Gosh, every summer they live in LA, but they go up to Maine for the summer. And so they always come through and they're three beautiful, lovely kids and their youngest always, always, always tries to play with Sachin. It's without fail. She always approaches him. She always tries to get his attention Mm. and he'll glance over and, you know, when prompted, we'll give her a high five. But for me, that's always a gut-wrenching moment of how our kids may have been friends with our dear friends as kids. And it, it blindsides me, but there's no space or flower bouquet or anything. I I had no idea you felt that way. Yeah. 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 I, and we've never talked about it because if Amit and I talk, (laughs) then we might go down a scary rabbit hole. And so we mostly push it to the side. I, uh, yes, I write. What's scary rabbit hole? Just out of curiosity. Like when you say that, just so that our listeners know, like, like, is that the scary rabbit hole where if we start talking about how painful this is, we'll never get back out or we'll take it out on each other or the conversation will never end? All of the above. I mean, it can go down a rabbit hole where you, you start talking about what if, and yeah. you end up focusing on all the things people can't do, we can't do as a family and they can't do individually versus what we can do. That's one scary path. Another scary path is feeling sorry for ourselves. Another scary path is, if we disagree with each other about maybe one of us is overreacting to something or not, doesn't have the perspective and that can trigger anger and friction between the two of us. Another path is going to grab a cocktail and that quickly turns into three cocktails. I hear that. You know, there's a lot of different things. And so we, I mean, you were about to talk about other coping mechanisms or not. Yeah. Tell, tell yeah. you, right. You said. Yeah. So we do at the beginning of COVID, you know, we lost all our services. We lost six hours of day services and three hours of daily nighttime services in the home. In addition to about four or five hours of help on Saturday and Sunday. So, and these are, these are urgently needed services. I understand. Una doesn't, because of privacy, Una doesn't like talking about what the boys can't do. I won't go into details, but at a high level, think if you can't talk and you are so anxious that you have to lock yourself in your room and then you're stuck and you can't go to the bathroom. Like there's all kinds of stuff that happen that require physical intervention. Yeah. Like real care. You need care. It's help, but it's care. Yeah. Yeah. Physical care. So it has this lovely friend from business school who actually has left finance and started a meditation practice. 
And so we connected with him early on and it has been transformative for both of us. Oh, wow. First of all, that sounds extraordinary. And I want to know that guy's story, but that's for another day because I can imagine that someone (laughs) that comes to me. That's, that's amazing. But tell me about meditation because I, I actually just had this conversation with a doctor down here about, you know, it's not, we're not talking about something we read in Oprah magazine. We're talking about an ancient practice. And the reason that we're talking about it is there's neuroscience behind it, but, but tell our listeners how the meditation helps. Want me to take that? Yeah. So, you know, I happened to listen to your podcast with Lisa Shulman. Yeah. Dr. Shulman. So don't laugh at me and I don't want to rehash it, but the, the simple understanding that you got this thing called the amygdala, amygdala, uh, it triggers an emotion. And then our brain isn't naturally hardwired to immediately catch that. And, And so when you get to your critical thinking in the cerebral cortex, like you may have taken an action already before you absolutely instinctively. That's right. And she talked about interventions. I think of it as just coping mechanisms. You don't breathe, stop, don't react until you can breathe. And so creating patterns, creating the muscle in your body and mind to just be with yourself and be present and be kind and curious in the moment. And I think meditation is all about putting us in a place where we build up that that muscle to yeah. be able to do that. And Una does it far better than I do, but it's, you know, the, the mindfulness and meditation, the, the gratitude journal, focusing on what's possible versus what's impossible. It shifts your mindset and it shifts one's mindset and it, sh- it creates a place where you can appreciate beauty in anything, no matter yeah. how the situation is. And so you talk about, you know, wouldn't it be great if we had grief and loss training for kids in school. I think of mindfulness as a piece of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And my kids actually here were in Montgomery County in in Maryland. My kids have meditation that they do. And I mean, and then I force them to do, but it, you know, they have a little bench and all kinds of stuff and they are taught a little bit exactly what you just described, which is, you know, the way I say it to clients is it's like practicing a free throw. So that when you're on the line, your body knows how to make the basket, it, you know, cause you're going to be under a kind of pressure then that you're not now. So let's teach the muscles in your body to be able to land this so that you can show up for the moment with more resources than you would on average, because your instincts, you get so jacked up, your instincts want to respond differently. Can you Una, tell us a little bit about the actual meditation? Is there a model to it? You know, there's just like yoga and breath work. And, and I do really want to say these are treatments. People are like, oh, it sounds a little new agey or Gwyneth Paltrow. They're treatments. They're ancient treatments. It all starts with the breath. The breath regulates how your heart move, you know, moves the blood through your body. And if you can keep your system regulated, you know, I say this as a trauma therapist, if you can keep your system regulated, there will be no trauma. If you can stay in your body in a way that feels safe and not stuck and not frozen, that is the antidote to trauma. So it's pretty extraordinary to say to folks, and it's why I make my kids meditate, honestly, and I do all kinds. We walk through labyrinths, we do guided meditation. We do coloring and mandalas. One is not better than another to me, but I know that at some point they are going to hit that space where their body wants to jump to reactivity that will cause a worse off, you know, response. But tell me about, tell me about the one that you guys use. Do you use the same? How, how do you, how do you do it? You know, for me, it's really about stress management. We have traumatic events that happen potentially on a weekly basis with behavior. And that behavior could be towards me, towards Amit, towards his teachers, towards their peers. And we have had events in the past on airplanes, in grocery stores, in parking lots where that trauma has occurred. And so when we are entering a particular activity or public space, there is this PTSD that occurs 
And there's very little research on my peer group and, and those of us who, who deal with this on a daily basis with our kids, unfortunately. But one of the one of the studies that is out there is about how a lot of us carry the same PTSD as soldiers in combat. Absolutely. Because we're remembering those horrible, horrific moments on a daily basis as we go through our daily lives. So in those moments, I practice sort of a mini meditation. When there's a transition happening, I will take a breath in box breathing four yeah. counts and then out for four counts. I'll close my eyes. I'll try of doing a lot of visualization. I'll try and visualize the way I'd like for it to go. And I can feel my heart rate drop and I can feel my body sort of remove itself from that panicked, you know, fight or flight state to something that's more doable. And my boys, although nonverbal and cognitively delayed, they feel my stress. It's a, absolutely. It's a, it's something you can feel. And so I need to be grounded and yeah. pass that to them to say, you can do this, you know, and it's been very helpful in that way. But I also try and take 10 minutes at the beginning of the day and 10 minutes at the end of the day, just for my own healing mm -hmm. to be able to sleep and things like that. <laughs> right. Right. And, and when you're talking about sort of the PTSD of veterans, one thing that sort of popped into my mind about the data around that is generally the veterans have PTSD symptoms that show up after they're off the battlefield and you guys don't have an after off the battlefield. I don't mean to use that in a, but, but where the energy is and where the intensity is and where the possible, the possible sort of unpredictable, scary moments trauma can be is any day of the week, all the time, forever and ever I'm in. So that it, I think it, from a trauma perspective, when we're talking to caretakers, you know, I know a little bit about some of the legislation on this, like there are states like California that actually, you know, they have respite workers as part of public funds, particularly because of the data on this, which is you will become unwell if you're not able to do what you're talking about. And that we can't have everybody in the system be unwell. But how about for you, is the, is the meditation similar to what Una described? Do you use it in the same way? Do you very, very, very similar. The only thing I, I would add for, for anybody who's listening that thinks it's hard to get started or they don't have the time, you can do it when you're taking a walk. Yeah. You can do it when you're swimming. You can do it when you're on the Peloton. The basic idea of just closing your eyes or breathing, getting yourself centered, the hardest part for me, I'll try and make a comment that Una didn't make because she covered it so well. The hardest part for me is this the idea of just being present and not thinking about anything else and just being. Yeah. Uh, because in our minds, because when you're in this, call it grief mode or in this mode where you're overwhelmed by all the things that you're not doing or can't do and wishing things were different, it's very easy to let random thoughts come into your mind that in and of themselves create more anxiety. And so I find that just, just experimenting with a bit and making it your own practice of just, yeah. you know, there's no one, one right way to do it, but just, just trying not to, just trying to clear your mind. I love, I mean, I love the encouragement behind that, partly because I am someone who, and I would say it like this to my clients, I think you should be meditating. And by the way, I have a really hard time meditating. <laughs> I think I feel differently about meditation in the last couple of years of my life than I did when I was sort of trying to learn meditation from people who were trying to teach it to me. That notion of like, you know, I was supposed to have an empty mind and then I wasn't supposed to. I think of it more like a yoga class now, like there are multiple different kinds of meditation. There's a meditation that I do regularly that is the breath work is so, it almost makes you hyperventilate, like is really an exercise. It's a different kind of meditation with a different sort of drive. Again, if we look at Oprah magazine, I'm not trying to disparage Oprah, but if we look at that, she says, do yoga without any real explanation and Ashtanga and, and Yin yoga are two totally different practices with two totally different 
aspects to them. So what I usually say to people is before you start to meditate, if you feel afraid or resistant, just go, go closer, get a little bit more education. I have some websites that I send them to, but the other thing is I practice this kind of therapy called IFS therapy that talks about the different parts of you that come in almost like the the image that I always use is like, it's like bus drivers. Like you have a variety of bus drivers who can drive the route. And so if you have the angry bus driver, he's going to drive the route one way. If you have the, you know, the absent-minded bus driver, he's going to drive it another way. But when my thoughts come in, when I'm meditating, the way that I often think about that is that there is something about me just connecting to kind of like the divine wholeness, which is what I think of really is at the core. Everything is as it should be in this moment, that there are parts of myself that don't trust that that would be okay for me, right? The same way, Una, a second ago, you said, we don't want to go down that rabbit hole. And I always ask that question, what's, what do you think's down there? Because when I'm trying to meditate and clear my thoughts, I want to know why is that such a difficult, what, what is my system afraid of if I just sat with myself? And everybody's answer is a little bit different. And it may be that you guys would find grief and loss there. It might be that someone else would find panic and abandonment there, but I think there's a fear and that's why it's hard. And so if you can practice just like even one more percentage of it, it's so transformative because what it says is you can have those fears and live through it. Right. And I think that's kind of what you guys are describing. When I talk to clients, what I say is let's just name what all the fears are. Like we don't want to make fear-based decisions. We want to be able to be curious and we want to be able to be creative, but literally your brain can't do that if it's all jacked up. So we got to clear the decks. Like there is no oxygen to creativity and curiosity when your amygdala is that big. So that's the gift, I think, is when you have been practicing meditation, you literally give yourself the option to show up to the moment, the stressful moment, totally differently. And that, that's like a gift to everybody. So the meditation sounds like it's something that works for both of you. Do you guys mind if I ask about your daughter, Maya? She's a, just a little bit older than the boys. Mm-hmm. And she's at college right now. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Is that she's been in college though? This isn't her first year out or is it because of COVID? No, it's her second year. Okay. Okay. And and was she in college last year, even though she was, she was in person, um, okay. just freshman on campus, which was a very unique and stressful experience, but wow. <laughs> very restrictive experience. So yeah. It's so hard with young people who are doing things. I mean, I find this with my kids who are a little bit younger than yours, but you know, they say like, how should I do this? I'm like, how the hell would I know? It wasn't like that when I, you know, I, I didn't live through COVID. I don't know how you should eat your lunch in the lunch. I don't know. Do you see Maya having different adaptations and, and ways in which as sort of as a young adult managing her own energy or grief or do you, and I'm curious what that's like to parent that as well for you guys. Yeah. I mean, she has this empathy, the size of like, I mean, a watermelon. I don't know. It's just such an outsized sense of empathy. It's, it just is so obvious to anybody who comes in contact with her. It's incredible. I always think back to this story when she was in third grade and she had her best friend over. So she really was only comfortable having one friend over because of her brothers and a lovely friend. And they were both in Maya's room and I was folding laundry outside the room and I could hear the girls talking and her friend asked, don't you sometimes wish Anjan and Sachin were normal? Don't Mm. you wish they were regular kids? And my heart just dropped. I thought, oh, she's going to start sobbing and she's going to come running out of her room in tears. And like, this is such a horrible moment. And I just started panicking and quick as a wit, she turned right around and said, but then they wouldn't be Anjan and Sachin. Oh, stop it. They wouldn't be them. They would be different kids. They wouldn't be my brothers. And of course, you know, I was waterworks, but that was, (laughs) that was the end of the day, (laughs) day. but that is truly how she approaches them, her life 
our family. For me, that's really symbolic. She obviously has lots of challenges and moments around having people over and which of the friends she's able to share this with. She's only 20. So the beginning of this journey for her. I think you're right. I think the best way to think about it is not only is she kind and empathetic, but she, she sees things that I frankly don't see often perspectives. Like what is, what is typical in the first place, by the way, but like, if you think about it, there's all kinds of craziness amongst many of our family members. And we're a close, we're a close family, extended family. I'm talking aunts, uncles, grandparents, cousins, and like all families, there's craziness. There's all kinds of issues that people in the family have. And whether or not they're quote unquote typical. And I find when having conversations with Maya, she, she brings a perspective and without betraying anybody's confidence, like just asking questions or having insights about why people behave the way they do or why Mm. someone did this or why someone reacted in this way. Yeah. Oh, I mean, those are the things like, I don't want to put a bright sunshiny moment on everything, but you know, when we talk about loss and we talk about trauma and we talk about difficult events that happen in our lives, what our hope is as humans, as parents, as people is that it will not only give us distress, right? This concept of traumatic growth, like who the hell wouldn't want to have traumatic growth? It doesn't exist everywhere, but it, it does, particularly in people's whose minds and personalities are still still forming, which hopefully is all of us, by the way. It does offer an invitation to something that would not otherwise be there if she wasn't, you know, the sister to these brothers. So the idea that you're watching this quality that you yourself maybe didn't hone until later in life, if ever that, that that's one of the gifts that she gets. One thing that I'm curious about is I have this idea because your boys are 18, that you've spent nearly two decades sort of creating like a whole nother part of yourself, which is these folks who have to get educated in how to care for your sons, which is going to include understanding how to get services, what those services are that come into the house, what ones don't, how to pay for those things, what, you know, whatever equipment you need, all of that stuff. That's kind of like a full-time, part-time job, but also you guys have jobs. So I'm curious about the piece of your life that still is your work life. And again, whether you define it as a career job or the, the time that doesn't just represent as being the caretakers and the parents to your family. Have you noticed your own elements like with Maya that are, wow, you know, all this meditation is really helping with X, Y, and Z, or, you know, I just don't care about this stuff the way that I would have when I was, you know, 20, or I'm just curious, you're both are nodding. So it looks like that, that question is landing somehow. What's it making you think of? Yeah. So I'm pretty lucky. I, at work, without going into details at a high level, I'm an entrepreneur and try and be a good leader. And I think of leadership as a vocation, as a calling. And the name of my company is inspired by our boys. And I try and bring the understanding that I've learned through them to everyday work situations. And frankly, you know, everyday work situations, you know, I'm talking you know, being radically candid with people. I'm talking about friction. I'm talking about politics. I'm talking about people who behave in the wrong way, people who violate our core values, people who exhibit our core values. And so there's a lot to it in terms of the culture that we try and create at work. And what the way I bring it to work is a mindful leader is a more resilient leader, is a more effective leader. And you've got to bring the same grace or empathy, putting yourself in someone else's shoes before you can coach them with any degree of success. And so it absolutely has fundamentally shaped the manner in which I try and lead. I'm not saying I do this every day effectively, but it shaped what I at least aspire to do. Well, I took a quick look at your, at your website, which I think Uni, you gave to me, and it's pretty notable right from the front page that you're not, you know, dealing with the average bear in terms of what your mission is 
and just the core values and the words that are right on the immediate website. I mean, that everything that you just described is right there. So it's interesting to hear that you attribute that to, you know, being a parent to these boys. And I do think, I don't know, at least in my own experience, it's not that I have nothing left to lose. There's tons left to lose always in life, but I just don't feel like the energy around dancing around stuff or being polite. I, I, I don't think people find me abrasive, although I'm pretty good with anger, but I think people find me <laughs> really direct and assertive yeah. about stuff. Like when there's something uncomfortable in a room, I don't have any problem being, you know, like, okay, well, how are we going to fix this? And you can, you can see some people who are, who have not, you know, played on the fields that I played on kind of wince, like they weren't ready for it quite that much, but you know, and, and, yeah. the, and the offshoot of that is I can't spend a lot of time around people who can't play the way I play. I just don't have the energy to like, I, I'm, you know, this is varsity tennis. Like I can't play JV with you. I, you know, you can come up to my court if you want, but I can't play, I can't play down. And so that's an interesting, you know, I imagine some of your relationships have also changed, not only how you approach work, but the people that you keep close and around you, not because, you know, we're trying to exclude people from our lives, but because there's a limited amount of energy and energy need, it needs to feed us, it needs to feel a certain kind of way. And so I don't dislike people, you know, since I lost my parents, I just don't really want them around, which is maybe a different, when you're nodding, there are like two questions in there. You can answer either of them about your work or about relationships with people and how maybe they have shifted and changed. Yeah. I mean, I think about it in terms of concentric circles. I just think that we both have huge networks from school and work. And we very quickly after the boys were diagnosed, were unable to do things actually after the boys were born, honestly, yeah. before they were diagnosed, obviously we were very limited in what we could do. Their symptoms were very obvious right away. And so we were limited. And when we became limited, people started dropping off. Yeah, There were some people that called and said, Oh, we haven't seen you guys. And then there were other people that just stopped with the invitations or didn't alter the invitations. And so it became very clear, you know, over the, over two decades, certainly of the people who stayed close and of the people who didn't both socially and vocationally, I would say. And in terms of my work, gosh, you know, the families that live with autism in this country are just so overburdened. And Amit and I are so fortunate to have resources to be able to care for our boys. And so many of my peers don't. And it, that is where I have another whole space of loss in my heart for yeah. those families. And because they're going through what I'm going through, but they don't have the village or the help that they need. So I really try in my work to support as much as I can those other families. And then also on the margin, try and communicate the needs to other communities. Right now, working with doctors to be third-year medical school students and, and telling them our family story. Oh, that's um, amazing. We need doctors to care for our kids. There, there, is, there aren't enough doctors to care for autistic adults. Yeah. There just aren't. Yeah. That's so. Isn't that the other part of grief is when you come across an angel? Like I'm thinking about our medic, our practice, the practitioners in our lives, they're truly angels. So, you know, we're super stressed. One of our sons, how many years has it been since he's been able to go to a medical facility? Yeah, like four years. Like he, he hasn't been able to take a step outside in his own backyard yeah. for two years. Yeah. Okay. So that's how anxious he is. We had a doctor and he can aggress. Uh, we, we had a general practitioner, a pediatrician actually, come into our home. And what shots did he give him? He gave him all his flu shot, vaccination, update, boosters, whatever he needed. So, you know, we have people that take extraordinary measures to help us. Yeah. And without that help, I have no idea where we would be. Yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. that's, that's a lot of our passion and work is just to try and try and help 
create systems where people don't have to grief, grieve their whole lives, the loss of, of a typical child and the loss of their own lives. Like, as you say, we have to care for them every day. And kudos to California for paying for respite care. So that that's really a part of our voca- my vocation. It's just the passion around that. And it's interesting, Emma, to hear you describe the angels like as grief, right? Because at that point really landed with me because I think, you know, what everybody always wants to do is have a positive, you know, grateful, appreciative, hopeful experience, which is obviously not possible because the moments of our lives, somebody on the other line, they're just not saying yes when they could, or they're giving us a date in October and we need them tomorrow. And, you know, those, those, those are the, those are the slings and arrows that caretakers take all day long, all the time. But the antidote to that is when you, right. Is, and I can feel that in my body is when you land with someone, I used to work at children's hospital in the emergency room and, and less so now because I'm out of the network, but I would have people come to me call me and say, I need help with this. And I would have this moment of like, this is going to be energetically expensive for me. This is going to take me some time, but it will be a thousand times more energetically expensive for this. They're going to have to reinvent a wheel that I already know how it spins. So that balance of being able to show up for someone or have someone show up for you in this way, you called it an angel, but I do think it has the threads that connect us as humans, right? Like that's when we feel validated. And when someone treats us, gives us the gift of that, Mm -hmm. which is like that unbelievable sort of compassion that we need. If you didn't have that kind of compassion, your son wouldn't have medical care. And those I think are the most hopeful moments. Can I ask you guys, what are there, are there sort of common elements of things that drive you crazy? I mean, I feel like you've been very magnanimous about grievers are particularly when they're in raw grief, they're really willing to say like, no one has shown up for me. People are terrible, you know, and, and I don't think they mean it when they're saying it, but I think it's what they're feeling in the moment, right? They're feeling really isolated and really alone. And one thing I'm taking from you is that you guys have managed to build not only a network of providers, but a deep network between the two of you. You understand how this ship sails, but are there things that you bump into every day that are, you know, just sort of the universal, like, I'm going to stab someone today. You guys are laughing. So, so just give us, but you want to go first. So Amit and I haven't been away, just the two of us for more than one night. We calculated since 15 years. It's been 15 years. That drives me crazy. Yeah. It's really hard to leave them. eh? Yeah. We have incredible therapists and teachers who come, but they're also extremely busy getting nursing degrees and behavioral degrees. And these are 20 year old somethings who are, so that drives me crazy. Yeah. I'm imagining people are listening to that and thinking again, like those are the secondary losses of the primary loss, right? Which is like, I don't get to be with my husband in this normal way that couples get to go, you know, we don't get to be a couple in that way. I can think of two or three different things. The first and foremost is, you know, when you go through grief with somebody else, in this case, Una, if you are on different pages or disagree, and this doesn't happen often, but when it does happen, if we disagree and we're not on the same page and not supporting one another, that drives me bonkers. Yeah, Uh, I get really angry and scared. That's number one. Number two is, I'm not judging. Uh, at all, because autism is a very wide spectrum. Special needs yes. is a very wide spectrum. Yes. Um, but when you do your best to support others who are going through similar challenges and they constantly bring you down because they're, they're unable to kind of look at the bright side of things or focus on what could be versus what isn't that gets, that brings me down. Yeah. And then finally with uh, and Una said it best in concentric circles. Yes, we, we we still have a very tight circle of close friends and family. And sometimes when 
you, you hear them talk and they just don't get it and don't realize how awesome it is that they can do certain things and how awesome their lives are. It gets, that kind of drives me crazy. Cause I just want to be like, dude, like, what are you thinking? But, but you can't put yourself in someone else's shoes and everybody's different. And, but it just emotionally that, that can drive me crazy. Yeah. It's like a ding. I mean, I had this thing after my, my dad died right a couple of days after his 80th birthday. And I swear to God, everyone I knew dad was turning 80 right after my dad died. It was like, Oh, or 82 or 83. And I have no feeling about them going to their dad's 83rd birthday. Good for you. That's what you should do. And also I hate you so much that you get to go like how come you go you and, you com- you go and you complain about what he said and like he yeah. doesn't get this and it's like <laughs> just be happy he's here right and so what i have is sort of that universal like everybody's emotional experience is theirs and they're allowed to have it and also please don't have that be <laughs> grateful you know so those are the dichotomy of those two things and what i think of i always have this like image in my head of just like my little part that's in pain waving you know, they're just waving at me. Like, this is not about your friend being an asshole and that they don't respect their father. They're just having a normal experience of their dad being grumpy at his 83rd birthday. And you have some old pain that they just like, you know, poked into. But I think both are true. And I do, you know, I have this thing with my husband where, and I do it with the kids too, where, and it actually came out of a fight, which I think is, is, is how all the good stuff in our um, marriage comes is like the truth comes out in a fight. Good but things, doesn't it? Yeah. After my dad died, I spent a lot of time sort of like checking in with the kids on their feelings. And, and it was a, it was a rough moment for Mike and I. And I said, like, I need you to ask me about my feelings. I need you to ask me every day how I'm doing, because I am not going to like throw myself on the hearth of our fireplace and wail. I need you to ask me because I'm sort of an external griever. Like I don't spend a lot of time by myself thinking about how I feel, which is probably how I became a therapist. And my therapy is good for me is that I need the invitation. I'm safer when someone else is holding my energy with me. Right. And so that's literally, I mean, God loved the man. He took me literally for the next month, every day, he'd be like, anything I need to know about your feelings. And it was more like a check-in than a let's have a deep, meaningful conversation about something. It was just sort of like, oh my God, somebody was complaining about their dad, you know, their dad's birthday. And, you know, I saw a whole bunch of old men eating at a deli. I had to cry in the car. Like it was just sort of like a list so that I felt less isolated and less alone because the thing about grief is no one can know your own experience. No one can know what it feels like for you to be the father, you to be the mother of these boys in this family with your experience. Even if all you did was tell them all day, because it's yours, it's yours alone. So it drives me crazy when people are like, you're not alone in grief. The hell you are. You are absolutely alone in grief. Even though and that's not the same as being isolated. I was, I was thinking, even though Una and I are going through this together, we obviously have, there are differences in our own expectations of what life would have been like if they didn't have severe autism. And what, it's funny, my, my question for Una is often, are you mad? Yes, um, <laughs> and it irritates her to no end when I say that and that might happen on like a, a Sunday afternoon where you know we can't go anywhere and it's it's a beautiful day and like families are at the beach or whatever and like we're just attending to the boys and it's sort of like we call that like you know let's just give ourselves a break today yeah um, oh. but I like asking her are you mad <laughs> It's so interesting what you say, Megan. It so resonates with me that we are truly alone in our own grief. And it makes me feel so less alone, ironically, to hear that because, you know, you feel as though you should be okay or should be able to unburden it or that someone should be able to make you feel better. And it's just validation. validation. I wish there was another way to sort of pass that on to my peers, because I think so many, so many of my peers are sort of um, experiencing it without a label, without knowing what it is and then fighting it and like trying to fight through their, their children's lives with this heavy burden. Yeah. And I think of the concept of sort of like naming it, it's the, what we started with. It doesn't help anyone to like bullshit, you know, you have to say what it is. And 
And when you say what it is, it's a huge relief. And, and that's true about anything that you're grieving. If you're grieving that your marriage isn't what you expected it to be, or that your health isn't what you expected it to be. And from the sort of Buddhist tenet, like that's where all the suffering is, is when you compare what you, where your expectation, expectations are based on where you actually are, but that's human experience. That's what we do. And the expectations can simply be like, I was kind of hoping that the boys were going to have a calm day and they're not having a calm day. Like it doesn't have to be, I wanted them to, you know, go to Yale like I did. It, it can, it can be something smaller. And I love when you described, are you mad? Because, you know, our, our listeners can't see this, but I could, I can see the marriage dynamic in there. And I have a very similar thing. And my husband who is savvy, cause we have been, uh, you know, together a long time. He'll turn and be like, are you mad? I'm like, okay, all right. Yes, I am actually. Because one of us needs to say the thing. And I want him to say it, that he's mad that it's raining and, you know, our kids aren't going to go to a play date and we don't get the house to ourselves for two hours. And I'm mad about it. And I will often sort of say, hey, how are you feeling about this? And he'll be like, how are you feeling about this? Because the minute it's named, it's a little bit of less alone, Right. And when when we know, like from French existential poetry, we are alone, but it's a little bit less alone. The other thing that I was thinking about, which we didn't name when you were talking about what it's like for parents who have autistic children who are across the spectrum, you, you were talking about being resourced. It also strikes me that you guys are intellectually resourced, right? Like these things are incredibly hard. The how, how do you go through your insurance company? How do you get things paid for? How do you research and find the kinds of resources? You guys are smart, well-educated, well-connected people and being able to have the agency to reach out and get those things for your family, bring them into your family. That is one kind of resource. I also know that there are people who know that there are people getting resources and can't navigate the system and figure that out. So I just also wanted to say that, that, yeah. that that is, you know, one of the challenges. For sure. The other thing I was thinking about, Megan, as you're speaking is that in this particular population, unlike grieving for really someone that you've lost, there's a little bit of a nuance that it's not okay. Yes. There are lots of advocates and self-advocates who don't view this as a loss, neurodiversity, the neurodiversity movement saying who's to say what's typical, this isn't loss, this isn't, you know, so there's a bit of apprehension from us and our peers to call it a loss because that's, that's not necessarily politically correct. And so that's another thing that holds us back from naming it or experiencing it, which is potentially a little bit different, but the trauma is there yeah, and the feelings are there. And so when I saw your work and connected with it so deeply, I felt personally, what's so bad? I love my boys. I love them to tears, but like, this is my experience. If they were self-advocates and were verbal and could talk, I don't know, maybe we would be having a different conversation, but that is in, in our sphere, that's another reason why certainly at events and things like that, it's all up and up. It's all very positive. We don't talk a lot about loss as a group, which is- That's, that's an interesting, dis, you know, distinguishing feature. And I'm glad that you- brought that up. I don't know that I would have known to ask that. And although I've definitely, you know, been on the receiving end of that experience. And what I was thinking, um, and a minute ago, when you were talking about the people who can only feel the negative, right? Like they're just like colloquially, the idea of like hanging around depressed people is depressing. What we talk about in grief work, and we talk about kind of in therapy in general is like, you want to be with the right energetic bandwidth of people, right? Because you don't want people who are trying to make you more cheerful than your actual authentic experience. You don't want people who are invalidating you like, no, but it's great because, you know, that hurts when someone can't make room for your actual experience. And 
you don't want to be around people whose experience is, is pulling on you so that you have to have a more negative experience. So I always think of it as sort of like striations in the, but it is interesting that as a, there's an ethos inside the entire culture that we're supposed to act as though, or feel as though this is something that we should be positive about, because I never trust that anywhere ever with anyone that anyone ever with anyone. And in fact, at a cocktail party, I'm probably going to walk away from that conversation. Like if you're going to tell me this is black and white, like I live in a world of gray all day long. So I don't, I don't, whatever that is, I don't want to touch it because it probably shouldn't get touched. It might break. And I think it's exhausting. And the, the concept that I use with grievers all the time is like, listen, no one can take away how you feel. They can walk away from how you feel. They can say that it's not good for them to be around how you feel. But when you center yourself in the narrative, I feel disappointed. I feel like I am mourning. I feel it's really not about being negative. It's about the naming the energy inside your body, honestly, in the hopes that you don't have to carry it just like that. Well, that's the whole idea is that I really think it's so personal. And I think one of the things in my work life that I believe in is this theme of conscious leadership and this concept of a line and you're either below the line or you're above the line. And when you're below the line, there's not enough. You're in the fight or flight mode. There's not enough love. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. You're argumentative. You have to be right. Everything's a fight. And if you're above the line, you're in this state of play where you're kind, curious, collaborative, and you're just trying to get to the right answer. And yeah. I find when, when you're grieving, when I'm grieving, it's very difficult to be above the line. Yeah. Um, it's very, very difficult. And, and when I, when I made my prior comment around, it drives me nuts when people can't somehow, it, it drives me nuts, not because I'm judging them. It drives me nuts because, you know, things could be worse. Yeah. Be a lot worse. And, you know, we're, we're grateful for, the fact that our parents were immigrants and most sets of parents have seen adversity that we can't even imagine. Yeah. We're in the midst of a pandemic, what's not to get on a soapbox, but there's a lot of bad stuff happening in the developing world right now. And there's always another side of the story. Yeah. And I think we can ground ourselves in that, right? Like just hold ourselves you know, as a, as a useful tenant. And I think there are moments where I have to let go of that and just tumble into, you know, you said you, you, you know, try not to be self-pitying and try not to be, and we all try not to, but there are moments where, you know what, I'm in bed, it's Netflix and ice cream. Cause I don't have the capacity to shift this energy off of me other than to go all the way through it. And when I'm sort of coaching grievers, what I, what I often say is nobody knows how to do this. And I believe you can, right? So it's, it's that and scenario. And I have a lot of stats because I, you know, I like the academic sort of component behind it where I'm like, listen, most people only really, really pounding like full body cry for seven minutes before the vagus nerve comes in and sort of calms your system. I am really doing coaching. I know that you don't believe you can do this like physical therapy, you know, you don't think you can take another step, but like, I know how the body works and I believe that you can, but I think there's an and element, the but and component around loss all the time. And there are some modern grief theories about this, which are, you know, like I am in my loss for part of the day or part of my hours or part of the week. And I am experiencing lots of joy. And I think there are periods of time where like the pendulum doesn't swing quite. I'm more in my loss than I am in the restoration of having things that bring me joy. And I do want to ask this question, like how have you managed without all of the resources that you are describing having lost? Like that made me catch my breath. How does a family fill in after that amount of resource gets stripped away? Yeah, I think, I think that's why we turned to meditation because I think we were really at our wits end. And when you live in that pendulum swing of loss every day, we saw, gosh, other families, you know, pretending like it was a big, long sleepover. And for us, it was like a living nightmare. And so I think just trying to not sit in that day-to-day loss 
was like a battle because we had to get up and we had to get dressed and we had to try and do what we could do. They didn't understand about masks. They didn't understand why we couldn't go get Cheetos at the convenience store. It was just a constant, a constant daily battle. And then slowly our angels appeared and they said, let's try and get on Zoom and see how they do. And maybe I can do 10 jumping jacks with Sachin, or maybe I can watch a Barney video for a half hour with Anjan. And and our angels said, we'll do virtual medical visits and maybe we do a, you know, a rescue med for if he gets really escalated and you can give him a quick sedative if you need it. And we started a weekly family Zoom dinner <laughs> and Anjan, who hadn't been able to sit at a dinner table physically with family for seven or eight years, seven or eight years, right? And he's 18, who's locked in his room all day, hops into the Zoom and smiles and laughs while the family's having dinner virtually. He loved it. So it's a different way for him to experience life that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. Yeah. Those are the wins, right? Like those are the things where, and, and I do, you know, I encourage people with lots of things, high, you know, high energy, ridiculousness, pranks, like whatever anybody <laughs> funny on, on um, the internet, you know, I'm, I'm always saying to people, all right, send me your funny TV shows. These are the ones I've watched because those shift how we feel, but, the, but it's true when you have children who rely on a routine we're terrified of that routine breaking, but also just like everything else, when something breaks, there's an opportunity for something else to grow. And I imagine for you guys, that must've been a really extraordinary win to have him participate in a family dinner. It doesn't take away all the challenges of COVID. And again, you guys have taken in a lot of intensity that people will never really be able to validate for you. That's kind of for you and your family together. But when there's vulnerability like that, real vulnerability, I have a colleague who's like, you know, is it vulnerable if you choose it? Isn't it really only vulnerable if you didn't choose it? And Mm -hmm. the kind of vulnerability that you found yourself in and to have people come in when you really need them you know, some folks don't do that their whole lives. They don't understand what it feels like to be truly deeply helped and held by community and by carers. Would we wish that that didn't have to happen? Probably. But the truth is you guys have the gift of that in a way that other people maybe never will, will never understand. I am a person having done the kind of grieving that I've done who like sends cards, sends texts, because I know what that feels like on the other side. Before I let you go, I want to be mindful of your time because I feel like I could talk about this forever. Is there anything that you really do, you know, knowing that you have the ear of, of my folks listening, is there anything that you want them to know? Anything that was a lesson learned or something to keep on the horizon to look out for around the kind of loss that you are talking about? If people want to show up better, differently, with more compassion, I think you've talked about this a little bit in your work that I've read, Megan, and pity never goes over well. Yeah. When people pity us, it is so aversive. Yeah. We can say we will grieve. We can say we mourn the loss of our typical sons, that it's hard and we have really sad moments. But when someone comes along with pity, that is really soul crushing. And, you know, when you and I didn't know each other well in high school, but when I started reading your work and when we connected, I knew you had this intrinsic something. I didn't know if you knew anything about autism or anything about it. It doesn't take a lot to have compassion. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I just feel like pity is, is, is something that I, I never pity anybody in their lives. I, I feel like there's always something we can do, yeah. but I don't know if you have anything well, else. 
you're so profound that it's hard to follow you, but uh, <laughs> I, do, I do have a different thought that I'd like to share. Yeah, uh, I, won't, I won't articulate it as well as Una, but we talked earlier about PTSD uh, and soldiers, or we talked earlier about other families with special needs. In the world that we live in today, where there are so many just and right fights to have, I'm talking everything from social justice to gender equality to the rights and needs of people with special needs, we tend to get atomized. And like our grief is more important than your grief. And one of the beautiful things that you and Una discussed today that I take away from this conversation is this concept of we're alone, but we're not alone. And these are all emotions that we as human beings feel. And I think one of the things in loss or grief need to always remember is that we're not alone. Yeah. And, and, and how we address the larger political issues or public policy issues, economic issues, doesn't necessarily need to be, my loss is more important than yours. And, and think more of how do, we, how do we solve some of these problems that we're facing as a country or as a society or as a community, not as an atomized like, you know, people with severe autism, special needs, people with Asperger's special needs, people with Down syndrome special needs. We need to think about how we solve for some of these things collectively because mm. we're not alone. I like feel that all over my body. And what it makes me think about is the deeply spiritual concept that there is enough, right? That there is enough for everyone, for every human, there is enough. And, and that when we come at something as though there isn't, there is a sort of competition or comparison that can kind of naturally format. But if you're able to step back and, and say, you know, we might have to do one before the other because resources are what they are, but there is enough. There's enough caring. We talk about this as uh, in my field a lot, sort of my subspecialty as a trauma therapist is grief and loss. There are other people who work with veterans or rape victims or, you know, people who've been in an earthquake. And that doesn't mean that the work that I'm doing in grief and loss is more or less important than helping a vet. It's just, I can't do all of those things. And I feel like one of the gifts is you take what's in front of you. And so if you have children who have special needs, then that's the natural piece that's in front of you. And it doesn't need to be implied that you don't also care about refugees, that there may be somebody who is at the top, top in the front of the line. But I love what you're talking about, because I think it, I think it has a very deeply sort of like spiritual umbrella which is we are not alone. And and I don't even mean, I'm not talking about like even God. I just mean like the energy that can, you know, take it to quantum physics, like the energy that connects us all is still there. And our unique and specific experiences really are ours. And the more we can sort of validate that and, and invite people in, you know, maybe with titrated vulnerability and so that we can feel connected rather than sort of like, you know, possibly steamrolled that that to me feels really important. And when you were talking about pity, Una, I think of that as a distancing technique, right? I remember there's a neighbor who I really like who, if, if you asked me what I thought about him first, I would tell you he loves his mother. His mother's always over at his house when he has parties, she's like out in the front. He loves his mother. And he, stopped me on the street after my mom died and shook my hand and said, I'm so sorry for your loss. And my immediate reaction was, no, you are not. I can feel you are not. I can feel that this is a polite gesture. And I felt sort of like the bifurcated, I can go to one of two ways. I can be pissed about that or I can be compassionate about that. He cannot even step close to what I'm talking about. Right. And so in my, in my heart space, what I had in that moment is like, you're going to remember that you know the story that I was completely devastated when my mom died because you're going to need my story later. And like, that'll probably be okay. 
But I think, you know, being able to like pick one versus the other is sort of how well-resourced you are in that moment. You know, if he had done that to me in the first 10 days after she died, I probably would have hit him with my car. But I think of that, I think of pity, pity as a distancing technique and it feels awful. And sometimes what we have to say is those people are assholes. I think in our more regulated space, we can wonder why can't they step close to this? And, you know, anytime anybody can't grab hold of the human connection inside a story, it's because of something that they are holding themselves that makes it impossible to, you know, their hands are already full of their own stuff. And I, you know, but I agree with you, pity is, is hard and keeping perspective, as you said, Amit, is probably a huge, it's a huge gift that I would say I regularly can't do. I love it as a practice, right? Like yoga and meditation. I want to do it. I believe in it. And I fail at it regularly, just like everything else. You guys, this has been a really beautiful conversation for me today. This felt like church or something. I am deeply grateful that you were willing to share your family's story and and just like your smiles and enthusiasm and you know the real truth of what it means to sort of carry both the burden and the joy of special needs children. This has been really, really lovely. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for, for this the, opportunity. The space. Yeah.